Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. What do I got for you today? I'm going to talk about 9-11. Today's the 22nd anniversary of 9-11. We'll talk about that. Then we'll talk about the diplomatic and trade war going on between Niger and France. And then we'll talk about Ukraine aid broken down by country. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid fire news. If I sound a bit weird, I'm still a little sick, but well, I'm getting better, so we'll soldier through it. So first up, we have India making moves towards calling itself Bharat, uh, the the old name for the sort of Indian civilizational sphere, the old Bharati Empire, which will be a very interesting change, especially in light of the fact that India is currently on track to becoming one of the top three economies in the world, uh, potentially even depending on what, you know, projections you're looking at, the number one economy, considering that China is going to be shrinking in population very soon, and India has already passed them up as the largest uh, country in terms of population now. So a very fitting name change to go back to the, the glory days of the great civilization, uh, as we move into this era of civilization states for India to return to its, its roots, its heritage as Bharat right around the time that these trends sort of take off and take it, take India to where they will would be quite very, very well timed. I'll say that much. So India always interesting, always interesting India. Uh, we definitely keep our eyes on India there quickly becoming one of the family favorites here. They, there's always something new to talk about with India, especially with regards to space. I love what India's doing in space. And then, of course, we have the go-go gadget Russian Empire, but uh, that one will be a very delayed gratification. Not that the destruction of Ukraine is necessarily what was on mind, but, you know, we sort of figured that this conflict was long in the making. But, uh, and I'm talking about the war in Ukraine. Oh, goodness. My, <laughs> I just noticed how much different my voice got over that like <coughs> that small period of time. But we have Putin saying that Ukraine's offensive hasn't stalled. It has failed, which we've observed ourselves. All right, we, we've observed this. We, I waited like a, a month, and then I waited like another few weeks. And I said, you know what, maybe I don't think this thing is working out. They've lost X number of tanks, armored vehicles, and artillery. They've lost X numbers of men, and this is back when the speculation was like 20,000. And I'm like, I don't think this is succeeding. And now here we are, uh, coming up on what, month three? It began in June, right? It began in June. June, July, August. Yeah, yeah. This is three months of the offensive, and they've gotten nowhere. So yeah, he's correct, and he's waited longer than me to say it. This offensive has not stalled. It has failed. It has objectively failed. No matter how you'd like to cut it, they've gained some land, but none of the land that the Russians dug in to prevent them from taking. They, they've 
reached the Suravikan line, which is the name given to the first line of the three major lines of Russian defenses, which are themselves behind the front line. And the Ukrainians have taken that long just to get past the sort of gray zone. That, that's what they call it, the gray zone, you sort of, because the Russian defenses are in one spot. And then in front of the Russian defenses is the front line, the actual line of contact, at which itself is sort of a kind of a parallel thing where you have the Russian controlled area, then you have the no man's land, and then you have the Ukrainian controlled area. So, and then there's miles between the front line and the defensive lines. So the Ukrainians have taken three months. They've lost tens of thousands. Well, I say tens of thousands. They've lost thousands of armored vehicles, hundreds of tanks, probably well over a thousand. If we're keeping it about 50 here, just within this offensive alone, it's probably nearing a thousand tanks altogether that they have lost. And they have lost what the the numbers coming out now are are what? 66,000 casualties. And we know that half of those are deaths. That's just the trend of the war. So 33,000 deaths, 66,000 casualties for three months that that's 20,000 a month. If you average it out, 22,000, 22,000 casualties a month. And you've just, and we're just now hearing stories about them reaching the Suravikan line, which is the first line of heavy fortifications out of three. And they've only reached it in one part of the front line where they, uh, specifically the, the part of the front line where they've conducted this broad offensive, because it's not like they're attacking with all their might across the entire line. They've concentrated their forces. And even within the with the, the context of the area that they're actually making the attack, they've only reached the Suravikan line, the Suravikan line in one point. This is a failure. The, the Russians didn't even need to do the defenses. Apparently what they, ha- what they had up until now was, was more than enough. So what do you think happens when all those reserve troops that the Russians have deployed behind the lines at each line of defense? What happens when those troops come from the back lines to the front to conduct their own offensive? Because if they're sitting in the def- if they're sitting in trenches with pillboxes with an overlapping lines of fire, if and they're just sitting in reserve wings waiting to swoop in whenever the Ukrainians make a breakthrough. If you have all these troops in the back line and then the line behind the back line and then the other line behind the other line that is also the back line, what happens when those troops are not in the back lines, plural, but are instead deployed to the front? Ukraine is losing against what the Russians have on the front and Ukraine's giving it everything that they and we have and they're still losing. So yes, this offensive has failed. It, there's no way around that it has failed. And Putin has said it now, officially. And the fact that he has said it probably hints at something coming down the line. A, a sort of subtle signal that, all right, it's our turn now. Your offensive has failed. It's over. Now we're going to do what we want to do. Because the Russians will go on the attack at some point. Uh, the speculation now is that they're probably going to make advances towards Kharkov, which they're doing now, mind you. As the Ukrainians have been doing this great counteroffensive, the Russians have been making uh, ground towards Kharkov and Kupiansk, I believe. Because if you remember a few weeks back, 
the Ukrainians were evacuating whole towns and settlements. Uh, and I believe the number is up to like 70 or 80 towns and settlements that they have evacuated in the general Kharkov region because of the advancing Russian troops. Because everyone was suddenly finding themselves in range of Russian artillery and so they had to evacuate. Russia is going to make advances towards Kharkov. Now, will they take Kharkov before winter? I don't think so. I don't think the Ukrainians haven't been ground down enough to do that. And Kharkov is a big city. But will they eventually go around Kharkov and just cut off the supply for the Ukrainian troops in there? Or force the Ukrainians to retreat? I don't know. We'll see what happens. But as we go into this winter, and we're not even in the fall yet, fall begins, what, sometime early next week? Fall is just beginning. And Ukraine has exhausted everything we've given them. So fall, winter, come spring, with this war of attrition going the way it's going, the Ukrainians are going to be out of our artillery. They're going to be getting low on just about everything. They're going to be just about ready to collapse. And there's and this time, there's going to be nothing left for us to give them to bail them out. Which means that the destruction of this Ukrainian army, which is said to be the third or fourth Ukrainian army that they've managed to put together with Western aid and training and equipment, the destruction of this army, there's not going to be a replacement army for Ukraine. They're drafting women now, but if you don't have the equipment, if you don't have artillery, it, it doesn't matter. You, you could put a rifle in everyone's hands, but if you don't have artillery, if you don't have the tools of modern war, you're going to lose. It, 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 they can't fight a guerrilla war in Ukraine. You could do that in Afghanistan where it's it's all mountains. It's all mountains and deserts and tunnels and caves. You can't do that in flat farmland Ukraine. There is no guerrilla war to be waged here. Ukraine will be destroyed. And this time there's not going to be a replacement army. Russia will just win. And that's the one alternative that everyone's sort of been sidestepping and avoiding isn't a possible, avoiding admitting that it's a possibility that Russia could just win. You see all these people making these videos about the ways that the war could potentially end. Rarely, if ever, is it considered that the Russians could just win. And I think that that's the one outcome likely to happen, especially as the Western side refuses to make peace. Now you're starting to get some talk now of the US now being on board with peace talks. I, I saw like one article where the US is now on board with peace talks if the Russians are open to it. We're open to peace talks. And the ideas have been floated of, oh, we, we can trade land in Ukraine for NATO membership for Ukraine. All these pie in the sky ideas. And that right away gives away the fact that these peace talks don't have a really good chance of succeeding. Because sure, it's one thing to say we're gonna sit down for peace talks. It's another thing to have realistic peace proposals that people can then latch onto and you can hash out an agreement with. Because until you have the agreement, the war goes on. Except this time, the Russians aren't going to stop their attacks like they did before, where they pulled out of the area in northern Ukraine that they were occupying before, around uh, Kiev when they first came in. When the Ukrainians signed those draft uh, peace treaties, the Russians pulled their forces out from the north as a sign of good faith. The Russians aren't going to do that this time around. 
they're not going to pull out again when they know that we're duplicitous and can't, and untrustworthy. They're going to stay right where they are. But if you start these talks and then you go into them with these pie-in-the-sky nonsensical ideas that we're going to get everything we want, Ukraine's going to get everything it wants, all of its territory, Crimea and the Donbass and everything, and Russia's going to get nothing, well, don't be surprised when the Russians say no to your pr- proposal and just continue to fight the war until they win. And I think that that's what's going to happen now. We've reached an important moment where the U.S. is now finally gradually getting on board peace talks. The problem is that the people who will presumably be doing the talking uh, don't live in reality. And they're egotistical and arrogant and unwilling to come to terms with that fact that they don't live in reality. That they can't tell the Russians to do whatever they want and that the Russians aren't going to do what they tell them anyway. So I'm not certain, even though we've reached this important point, which is definitely a step in the right direction, even though we've reached this moment, I'm not entirely sure if this moment is going to succeed precisely due to the immaturity of the people who are going to be participating in this. And uh, it's primarily our side, if we're just being honest here. None of the people in the West who have floated peace ideas, well, not none of the people in the West, none of the people in Western government, there we go. No, none of the people who are actually wielding the levers of power in the foreign policy air arena and the diplomacy arena, none of those people specifically have what it takes to get this done. I just, I don't believe it. They have not demonstrated that capability to me. What, you, we think Blinken is going to get the job done? <laughs> that guy is not worthy. He's not going to, he's not going to get anything done. He's just not. Biden? Kamala? No. Victoria Nuland? Jake Sullivan? No. None of these people are going to get anything useful accomplished. They're going to go up there and they're going to enter they're going to go along with all these pseudo intellectual ideas and again this is the the pain of these fake intellectuals who come up with these fake milk toast ideas who who've been pushing out there this idea that we're going to freeze the conflict. We're going to freeze the conflict like uh like the Koreas and like Sudan, Northern South Sudan. We're, we're going to come in and we're going to freeze the conflict. And we're going to keep the borders where they are. Russia gets to keep its territory. Ukraine keeps its territory. And then we're going to get Ukraine into NATO. It's like, okay, well, that's not going to work. You've given the Russians a case, a case for war. The solution is not to free to get Ukraine into NATO. That's not the solution. That's the problem. So how can, how can advancing the problem get you a solution? You can't, NATO cannot move into Ukraine. That is the problem. That's part of the reason why Russia intervened to begin with. But these are the ideas floating around in the halls of intelligentsia and the beltway. So, and these are the ideas that are going to be brought to the table because these are the ideas that these mentally immature people in our government have latched onto and that they agree with, even though they're not realistic in the slightest. They're going to go to these peace talks and they're going to say, we want to freeze the conflict or they're going to try to move to freezing the conflict. They're not going to tell her they're going to say they're smart 
and try to hide the cards, even though everyone knows what they're up to. They're going to try to freeze the conflict, keep it where it is, and then they're they want to. They're going to want to leave open provisions for Ukraine to join NATO. They're going to want to leave open provisions for them to arm and fund and give more aid and money to Ukraine, and that's just not going to fly. And then when the Russians say no, they're all going to have surprised Pikachu faces, as the Russian tanks continue to roll across the steppes of Ukraine. That's what's going to happen here. And so we're, we're we've uh, we've reached this moment that we've all been demanding, which is that we have peace talks, or at least we're about to, we, we haven't gotten there yet, we're about to have this moment. And it's gonna be ruined by all these pseudo intellectual ideas that have been pushed out there as though they were true, as though they were real, when they're not. And they're gonna come face to face with reality and everyone's gonna find out that they're not. And then we're gonna be back to square one because the Russians are gonna say no to these blatantly unrealistic proposals. And then all these people are going to blame Russia. Russia doesn't want to make peace. Russia doesn't this. Russia, And then Ukraine dies. That's how this is going to go. That's how this is going to go. But granted, we'll take the dub where we can. We've reached this moment. And we'll see how it goes. Uh, in other news, we have 43 people reported to have been killed uh, in another Sudanese airstrike in Khartoum as the civil war in Sudan continues to rage. We have the New Mexico governor banning uh, or attempting to ban guns in the entire Albuquerque region. Well, that's this the city. So the, the, within the city limits of Albuquerque, uh, this governor tried to ban guns or uh, citing the, the gun violence epidemic. And they, she said we were a public health. So it's a public health hazard. So I'm citing a public health emergency. Uh, therefore, ban guns. You're not allowed to... And it's like, uh, you can't do that. There's this thing called the Constitution. And yet another, in here again, we have yet another example of what I mean when I say that Americans aren't nearly as divided as we like to believe we are. Because everybody, and I mean everybody, blasted that lady for blatantly violating the Constitution. Even the, the common sense gun reform people came out against this. Now, they're probably trying to get out ahead of the story, so they come off looking after like the reasonable ones. Well, I'm in favor of gun safety, but that's going too far. But ultimately, I think that the pendulum is just going to swing way past them because of issues like this, because it, now it's it's out in the open. It's out in the open. The, the gun control people want to ban your guns. They'll say that we don't want to do it. They'll say we just want common sense gun control. And then when they get to power, they'll they'll try to do these authoritarian actions where they cite, where they just give themselves these powers by declare. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy how you can you can get all these extra powers, these powers that you don't have, constitutionally speaking, you can get all these extra powers because of an emergency. But you simultaneously can declare the emergency. You, you see the problem with that? Where's the, the checks and balances here? It should be the legislature who gets to declare emergencies. The legislature, or, or the judiciary, well, not the judiciary, but the legislature. They should be the ones to declare emergencies. If, if extra powers are going to be attached to that declaration, specifically for the governorship, 
then, then the governorship should not be able to just declare an emergency and then get all those powers for free. So here we ha also have a lesson in separation of powers and checks and balances. But yeah, everyone is suddenly a pro-gun Second Amendment person now. Precisely because of the principle. It's the principle. You violated the Constitution so clearly and blatantly. And every American is against what she did. Like I said, Americans are not nearly as divided as we like to believe. Uh, we have, in another state, we have the governor of Hawaii openly stating that uh, his intention to repossess, essentially, the lands of those Maui residents who had their homes burned down. He wants to repossess their homes and the state will have control of it. The state will have the land instead of just leaving the land in the ownership of the people who own it and, you know, helping to rebuild the houses, common sense. No, it's, oh, no, your home was burned down. Oh, I guess you don't own the land anymore. It's like, no, that that's not how that works. That's not how that works at all. No, I, I still own the land. My house is burned down, but I still own that plot of land. Well, unless they have a mortgage. If you have a mortgage, you don't own Jack Diddley or Squat. But if you own, the, like, you have the deed, you, they own that. You can't just go, oh, no, your your house is burned down. Oh, what a tragedy. Okay, so we're going to take that, and we're going to do whatever we want with the land. It's like, no, that's that's not how that works. The, this guy is a criminal. And uh, I'll eventually do a segment on all the, the nasty, nasty shit that's gone down with Maui and Hawaii uh, ever since the fires broke out and up up to and including the police turning people back into the flames as they're trying to get away. And it's the, the, the failures of the water system. Cause apparently the, the, uh, the power was down and they, and, and I just find that so ironic that you're an Island and you don't have water to put out a fire. Like you see the problem with, with that statement, but I'll eventually do a, a fully fledged segment on this. I've sort of just been sitting back and letting a lot of the information flow out of this. And it just gets worse and points to uh, more treason. And we'll, we'll talk about treason in this episode. Don't don't worry. When we get to that 9-11 segment, we'll be talking about treason. But yeah, it's what are these people doing? Well, we know what they're doing. They're they're bla or they're betraying us. They they hate us. And they want to do what they want, which is to create this new feudalism where you own nothing and you get to be happy. They will. That, that's what this is about. That's what this is about. And they're committing every atrocity. Well, that they can. And we'll see if they get away with it. I don't know if they will. I don't know if they will, but uh, they're turning Hawaii into Trump country. Because <laughs> the immediate criticism of all the, the money we give well the immediate criticism of the money we gave to Hawaii $700 for family was okay but you gave all this money to the Ukrainians and there are more people living in Ukraine than there are in Maui and yet per person the Ukrainians have still received more so what the fuck I think that all this goes to say that we can expect a landslide for Trump in 2024 that, and that's what we need. You know, we need it. We deserve it. We want it. We got to get these people up out of here because they hate us. And they, they're 
perfectly fine with burning down Hawaii to steal their land, just like they're perfectly fine with releasing a virus that they manufactured and then injecting you with a, uh, some would say a bioweapon. I'll just say poison. And they're selling you that poison as though it were the cure to the ailment that they created. It's literally, literally snake oil salesmen is what they are. And they have no remorse for what they've done. Not even, no remorse, nothing. They just want to sweep it under the rug. But uh, yeah, these, these governors are getting a little out of control. A little out of control. Uh, in Birmingham, Birmingham City, the council has gone bankrupt. Uh, that's the UK, not Alabama. Uh, and apparently this is over gender pay gap issues and they started paying people who didn't need to be paid a lot of money and started paying them an exorbitant amount of money. At least that's the story. And then they went bankrupt. A billion dollars down the drain. Now how they got their hands on a billion dollars is, uh, well, how they lost a billion dollars is beyond me. But I suppose that's what you get with modern monetary theory and modern economics. Am I right? We're just deficit after deficit because that's how economics works. But we have Morocco getting rocked with a magnitude 6.8 earthquake, which was then followed up by a magnitude 3.9 aftershock. So just a double whammy. And over 2,100 people are confirmed dead from this. Like this is one massive earthquake. One massive earthquake. And then last, we have the G20 meeting. Uh, yeah, so anyway. <laughs> I honestly wonder if I should even bother reporting whenever the G20 or the G7 have a meeting. Because it's just so irrelevant. They talk about having talks and then agree to have a dialogue on more talks. And it's like, well, okay, well, when are you going to do something of substance? And it's like, we can talk about that. No, we don't, we don't want to talk. We want to do things. If they're not going to do anything, then what's the point of talking about when they meet? That's why I can talk extensively about the BRICS, because they're doing things. I can talk about the things that they're doing. With the G7, the G20, it's what's the point of these institutions if all it is is these leaders of these big economy, these countries with these big economies meeting in one place and nothing of use or value is accomplished there. Literally just a club and you have a club meeting and then you go home. Oh, well, okay. That's nice, but nothing is accomplished. So is there really any value in reporting this? I, I don't know. I, I do it, but I, I'll be honest. I don't know if it's even worth doing. And Xi Jinping didn't, didn't attend. Neither did Putin. Uh, Sergei, uh, I almost said Shoigu, Sergei Lavrov, his foreign minister, went in his place. Uh, that's the, uh, in place of Putin. And But the rest of the G20 was just rinse and repeat. The Western members wanted to blame Putin for every evil under the sun. The other members called for peace in Ukraine. Uh, but it was a peace that the Westerners didn't like because it didn't give Ukraine everything that they wanted. And nothing was accomplished. And yet again, India is left holding the bag here because they've hosted the G7 and the G20. Uh, well, actually, the G20. What is it? Twice now? And twice the, the summit is ruined in India by people injecting Ukraine into everything. 
to and to the point now where the Russians and the Chinese don't even want to come. <clears throat> and it's like it's a debacle, diplomatically speaking. It, it's gone from being neutral to a bit of a debacle, pissing off all of the great powers and getting into a tizzy between each other. And by all the great powers, I mean China, India, <laughs> United States, Russia, and Brazil. Because let's let's face it, the rest of the Europeans are not great powers; they're barely regional powers. But yeah, uh, I eventually I'll come to a a determination as to whether or not I want to keep reporting on the G seven G twenty. I guess I will. It's technically a, a thing. But we have our eyes on the bricks, and I'll just leave it there. But that's the uh, not so rapid fire news, and we'll get into the meat of the today's episode in just a moment. Uh, but now, my lovely listeners, we will talk a little bit about 9-11. 9-11. Because today is Monday, but today is also September 11th. So it's very ironic that it ends up on the day that I record the podcast. But you know what? I'll take full advantage of it and as an opportunity to talk about it. So, again, today, as many of you know, is the 22nd anniversary of one of if not the greatest acts of treason in the history of this country. On September 11th, 2001, men employed by the CIA and trained in the U.S. Air Force, because they went to U.S. Air Force school to learn how to fly planes. And we know this because we were spying on them. We'll get into that a little bit later. But they're employed by the CIA, trained in the U.S. Air Force, on September 11, 2001, these men successfully hijacked four commercial flights, only losing control of one, which later crashed in Pennsylvania. Of the other three, one crashed into the Pentagon, which conveniently didn't catch a single second of footage showing the plane hitting the building. There was damage, we saw it, but I just find it interesting that this one of the most secure facilities on the planet didn't catch a single uh, second of footage of a giant aluminum whale barreling into them. But I'll digress. One landed, one crashed in Pennsylvania, one crashed into the Pentagon. The remaining two planes hit the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center in New York City. 3,000 Americans lost their lives as a result of an almost deliberate dereliction of duty on the part of the FBI, who by that time had known through the efforts of their own investigate of their own investigations, they by that time had uh, knowledge of everything. They knew who these perpetrators were. They knew where they were. They knew what they were doing. They knew what they were planning on doing, how they were planning to do it and when they were planning on doing this. Yet in spite of knowing all of these details about the hijackers, the FBI played no role in stopping the attack from happening. 9-11 didn't have to happen. The FBI knew everything there was to know about the attackers, and it's well documented. You can watch a documentary on it. They, they know who these guys were, where they were, what they were doing. With they knew everything. And yet, they chose to stand by and let it happen. 
and 3,000 Americans died as a result of their deliberate inaction on this matter. The CIA, who also knew these details, but far earlier than the FBI, as they employed these people, it was found out just a, f- a few months ago that the 9-11 attackers were, employ- were at the employee level in the CIA. Employees of the CIA flying planes into the Twin Towers. So the CIA knew everything there was to know about them. Let's, we, don't even, we don't even need to play that game. We'd be giving too much benefit of the doubt to the CIA of all agencies to suggest that they didn't know. CIA, the CIA knew who they were. If the FBI could find out through its own through its own investigations everything about these attackers, then the CIA who employed them and keeps tabs on them would also know all these details. So they who also knew these details, but far earlier than the FBI, also chose not to do anything. The CIA on that fateful day chose to follow through on their treason. And make no mistake, America, that's what 9-11 is. A story of high treason against the United States, committed by the very agencies who were supposed to use the intelligence that they gather to keep us safe. Treason committed for the purpose of manufacturing both consent and consensus within the American public for the execution of the forever wars we now find ourselves in today. We were stripped as a result of these attacks. We were stripped of our freedoms and left with an ever more pervasive security state that never seems to make us safer, but always seems to grow. And we can see it today with the persecution of Trump. A man who has promised to, for the first time, make that security state apparatus shrink. To which, yet another act of treason is committed in the form of election interference by the security state. Unknown numbers of innocent Americans have been shipped off to Guantanamo Bay and tortured on bogus accusations of terrorism and having connections to terrorist organizations, terrorist groups. The same groups, mind you, that these same agencies fund, arm, and train, and equip. But if you are so much as accused of having associations with these people, which these agencies literally have associations with, you go to Guantanamo, and you get tortured, and you get waterboarded. 3,000 Americans died on 9-11. Thousands of Americans lost their lives and limbs in wars started over the lie that we were sold following 9-11. The lie that it was hostile foreign terrorists who hated us for our freedoms. The lie that it was those people who we needed to be wary of when the real problem was in our own government all along. Accountability is a necessity, America. We will never have closure as a country until the gauntlet is thrown down on the Cretans within our government who conspired to kill thousands of Americans and then used the crisis that they manufactured to erode 
our constitutional rights, to erode our liberties and our trust in one another, pitting Americans against Americans to help cover up for their crime. We all know what the price for treason is, and we cannot move forward as a country until those criminals have paid that price. That is the story of 9-11, and it's not even a complete story. No one knows the whole truth of 9-11. That's the facts. Some of us are closer than others. I've come far for someone who was not even a year old when 9-11 happened. I was only a few months. But this shit can't stand. This shit cannot stand. And on this day, our beloved so-called president, fraud-in-chief, was found, he was to be found in Alaska. Not in New York, where the attack happened. He was in Alaska. And while, of course, we appreciate giving love to Alaska, this was not the right moment in time to be doing that. This was not the right place to be on this day. The real president would have been in New York, mourning the loss of our people. Instead, he was 4,000 miles away in Anchorage, Alaska. What kind of a president is that? Well, uh, I suppose the fraud in chief is doing what a fraud in chief does best. Pretend to be president of a country he was not legitimately elected in. A country he doesn't really care about. And more and more that's the message we get from these people, is that they don't care. This is a day of remembrance for America. And yet this supposed head of state, our supposed president, couldn't find the time in his busy schedule coming back from Vietnam to visit New York. A studied insult to American citizens and to the victims of this crime committed against the United States. <clears throat> It's a sad day. It's a sad day. But like I said, until we have accountability, we will never have closure. Because how can you have closure if the people who committed the crime are never brought to justice? And I'm not entirely convinced we will get to justice through the Justice Department because they don't seem entirely convinced that justice is a part of their job description anymore. They seem more interested in persecuting Trump. As a matter of fact, all of these in intelligence agencies are surprisingly dumb when it comes to one of the biggest attacks on U.S. soil since Pearl Harbor. Not a word. Nothing to be said. No new evidence. No, no, you don't have a re the results of an investigation, an ongoing investigation. No, we're just going to blame Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda for attacking America. 
not our, not us, not the CIA. They would never do something like that. They'll digress. 9-11 was a tragedy. A tragedy that goes without justice. A tragedy that goes without accountability. But more and more, I feel as though that era of no accountability is gradually being replaced with an era of accountability. There will be a reckoning for all the the blatant violations of our law and our constitution by these people. They think they will get away with it, and many believe that they will because they have for so long. But perhaps I'm being naive when I say that I feel that their time is coming, and quickly. That's what I feel. But only time will tell if I'm correct on this. Only time will tell. So for now, we'll mourn and give our hearts to the victims of this crime committed against us, to the victims of this tragedy, both the innocent workers of the World Trade Center building and the many firemen and police officers who rushed to the scene, knowing full well that it could, and for many did, end up being their last day on this earth. Now those are heroes. Those are people worthy of our respect. So like they say, before we move on to our next topic, never forget. And as I'll say, never forgive. Accountability needs to be had. And I think it's coming sooner rather than later. So now, as we move on from the greatest act of treason committed against the United States, 9-11, we'll move on to the the game, the great game, which is what I'll call it. I have in my notes the diplomatic and trade war between Niger and France, but I, I think I've come up with an apt title for what's going on here. The great game being played between Niger and France right now. And it is an entertaining game to look at, I'll say that much. So recently, Niger is either mulling over or they're about to. It was unclear if they have or not. Uh, But they seem set to raise the price of their uranium from 80 cents a kilogram to $200 a kilogram. Uh, Now, keep in mind, I'm saying dollars, but it's most of this is measured actually in euros. But I'm just going to say dollars. So every time I say dollar, think euro. All right. So just in case you want the super duper accuracy, but uh, I'm just gonna keep. I'm just gonna keep saying dollars. All right. But but hey, at least you know I'm being ignorant. You know. So <coughs> we're gonna. They're raising it from eighty cents per kilogram to two hundred dollars a kilogram, which is a two hundred and fifty times increase from dirt cheap to, well, 
a lot higher than the current market price. And I'll get into that in a moment. Uh, but I have a article about this and it reads, quote, according to a report published by The Spectacle. So it's carrying with the reporting of The Spectacle, which is the original article. According to a report published by The Spectacle, Niger, a prominent player in the global uranium market, has made a daring decision and increased the price of uranium from 80 cents a kilogram to 200 dollars a kilogram. Well, 200 euros. End quote. And now the article talks about how this is meant about uh, to help the Niger economy to and to help raise the international price of uranium. So it. The incentive for other uranium producers is to go along with this because it raises the international price, uh, especially, uh, well, we'll get into how effective this might actually end up being, uh, but this is just some of the statements given. Uh, and we'll also get into what I believe the real source of this move is. Uh, the article states that, quote, France, historically Niger's primary uranium buyer, uh, and bought uranium from Niger at the rate of 80 cents per kilogram. Ironically, on the other hand, and I think when they said and bought, I think it probably said meant had bought, but you know, uh, but ironically, on the other hand, France bought similar uranium from Canada at a price of 200 euros a kilogram. Uh, so, end quote. So, the international price, the the average is like uh, forty something right now dollars per kilogram. So France is beginning their uranium from Niger at eighty cents a kilogram, and they've been buying similar uranium. So I'm assuming similar size, quantity, and you know quality uranium, and the similar type of uranium, mind you, because there's different isotopes. Uh, but apparently France has been buying similar uranium from Canada at 200 euros a kilogram. Whereas they've been buying the uranium from Niger at 80 cents a kilogram. So that's, again, a 250 times difference uh, in terms of what you're buying this uranium for. So imagine you're a Canadian and you, or, or perhaps you're someone, you're... A French company, mind you, but you're based in Canada, and you buy, you buy Niger uranium at eighty cents a kilogram, and it, it comes to you because you're you're based in Canada, and then your government, and then France, the French government buys the uranium from you in Canada, except because you're in Canada, they buy it from you at two hundred dollars kilogram. So you've made a 250 times return on that investment. That's huge. That's a lot of use. Huge. So you can understand the business interests involved in this and perhaps sort of the desperation of the French government to try to overthrow the overthrown government in Niger. Now, the article goes on uh, into the grievances that Niger has with the current arrangement, which is obvious when you look at those comparisons between what they got for their uranium and what the Canadians got for their uranium. Uh, and then it refers to a series of reports about these grievances, 
ranging from claims that French mining companies don't pay taxes in Niger and that Niger has had its resources all but stolen due to the, the, the 99% discounted price that the French have been buying their uranium from Niger. They're, and it's, it's crazy. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they say, quote, as per the estimates, France imported around 17,640 tons of uranium per year from Niger in the last 10 years, paying 1.4 million a year, when it should have paid 352 million, well, 352.8 million a year. The report essentially claimed that France owes Niger around 351, uh, yeah, 351 million dollars a year, or 3.5 billion for the the lost, uh, the lost revenues of uranium exports for the last ten years. Because you you've been buying this at a ridiculous, a ridiculous discount. And, well, we don't consent to that anymore, so now you have to pay us all that money. You were not paying a fair price for our uranium, and we're going to demand that you compensate us for the, the decade of damn near free uranium you've gotten out of us. Now, you can make the case um, you can't retroactively... Uh, you, you can't retroactively alter the price of the uranium and then try to demand that the people who bought it pay you for what they bought at a discount going back 10 years. Now that seems a little unreasonable, but it's a grievance and you don't deal with grievances by saying that your grievance is is unreasonable. You deal with grievances by making a deal. The French refuse to make a deal, which is probably why they're going the Niger government is going forward with this. See, and this all goes back to France being slow. The French government doing stupid things. See, because if they had just accepted that the military was in charge in Niger now and just said, hey, we have no stake in what goes on in your personal and your internal affairs. We just want to make sure that our deals and our trade are going to go through. If you need to, if you feel like renegotiating them, we're open to negotiations. And we can work out a, a new deal that works for the two of us. That's how they should have handled this situation. That That's how common sense would have handled this situation. Instead, the French threatened a military intervention against Niger. Which uh, also I have to do a, a correction. Because I thought that the Niger had actually cut uh, France off from its uranium. No, they threatened to cut them off from uranium. So I've been, I've been getting that wrong for the past few weeks. And I've... In doing the research for this segment here, I've discovered that I was wrong, so now I have to say it, I'm wrong. So they have not cut France off from their uranium. And uh, I, also, this is part of me, this is in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, hold on now. If they're going to raise the price of the uranium they're selling to the French, well, how is that going to work if they're not selling to the French? And So, uh, in a way, being told that I was wrong actually helped make sense of what was going on right now, because I'm like, no, wait a second, if they... If they're not giving them uranium at all, how can you raise the price of uranium? You're not giving them. Is it? Oh, they they threatened to stop giving uranium shipments to French. They didn't actually do it. Okay, 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 okay. So now we have proper context. 
So that did not go through. They're still selling uranium to France, but now they're going to start charging uh, exorbitant prices because the French, the French got away, the France, because the French government got away with charging exorbitantly low prices, extortionary prices, mind you, out of uh, the Nigerians. So now the Nigerians are going to charge extortionarily high prices to the French in a sort of tit for tat, which the French would not be in right now had they handled this situation with some common sense. They did not need to come out on day one of the coup in Niger talking about a military intervention that they knew they didn't have the capacity to do. And they still don't have the capacity to do. But now look at you. You're in a trade war against your largest, one of your main suppliers of uranium. Not not the largest, they're not the largest even supplier of the French uranium supply. And we'll get into Niger's share of uranium production worldwide in a minute. But they still make up 20% of France's uranium. No matter how you look at it, you're going to have issues replacing that 20% or transitioning away from it. Even if, no matter how this shakes down, you're going to pay them. You're going to pay that exorbitant price, at least for a period of time, as you try to move away from Niger towards the other uranium suppliers. But that's going to take time. You can't just do that immediately overnight. And even then, well, the Canadians are going to charge you the same thing. <laughs> and considering that a lot of the other suppliers are in the, the multipolar world, they might start charging the French the same. They might not actually have an escape from this outside of uh, Canada. And we'll, we'll get into the numbers there. But this is grievance politics now. This is grievance politics now. You can't deal with the grievance of another country by telling them that, that their grievance is unreasonable. You deal with it by saying, hey, you, we know you have this grievance. Let's renegotiate the deal so that both you and us can benefit from it. Let's renegotiate the deal. That's how they should have handled this situation. Like The problems that we talk about between France and Niger at this point all just immediately trace back to their response to the coup because even with the coup right even with the coup in niger france had they handled it in an adult manner could have easily salvaged this situation by just saying you know what okay you're the new guys in charge we want to make sure that our commercial interests are going to be safe which you have an interest in because you want to make money as well so how's this going to go down? Do we need to renegotiate the deal? What's what's going to go on? And then the, the new Niger government under the military would have told them, we need to renegotiate this, 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 and this. And it's like, okay, we can have talks. And the French would not be in this situation right now. They would not be in this, this great game where they're threatening a military intervention and actively trying to get ECOWAS to follow through on a military intervention in Niger. While the Nigerians fight the French economy as a whole, as a concept, by threatening their energy supplies. Right before winter, mind you, because we're going into the fall. This is this didn't need to happen. And it wouldn't have happened had the French taken any other course of action. But instead, they tried to play the tough guy. And now they get humbled by Niger. Uh, and the humbling continues. But 
and uh, we'll find, go on finding where we're at. Yeah, the Niger is essentially wanting France to pay uh, a proper price for the 10 years worth of uranium that they got for out of Niger at 80 cents a kilogram. So they're essentially demanding three billion, three and a half billion dollars, three and a half billion euros, but three and a half billion dollars to account for the 10 years of almost free uranium France has gotten out of Niger. Obviously the French don't want to pay that. Uh, we'll see how this goes down and it's probably going to result in an energy shortage in France. That's how this is probably going to result an energy shortage in France or the French having to pay which the French might end up having to pay because it's too close to winter to start reconfiguring enough of their supply lines away from Niger. It's too late in the game right now. They can do it next year, maybe. Over two, three years, they could probably wean themselves away from Niger and start looking towards other buyers, and I mean other sellers of uranium, other suppliers. But in the short term, they're coughing that up. The, the Niger government is at least going to get a solid, what, uh, $351 million a year is what they're demanding? They're going to get just about $700 million out of the French before this is over. Because it just takes time to shift your, your, pro, your portfolio around like that. Because Niger makes up 20% of France's uh, uranium supply. That's a really big chunk. No matter how you look at it, it's going to take a, a few years at, on the low end to diversify away from Niger. And even then, you might still be buying some of your uranium from them. Niger is probably going to get at least 1 billion, <laughs> at least 1 billion euros out of France by the time the French can get this in order. Because this is going to be a multi-year affair. If the if the French are fully committed to getting their uranium from different suppliers. And even then, they're not going to get it at the same price that they're getting from Niger. 80 cents a kilogram is wild. So it's like, huh. But hey, look. Again, they could have negotiated a, a much lower price. They could have said, we get that this is your grievance... It's right before winter. We're really not trying to pay that much, but we promise you we can lock in at a certain price and that will continue to be the price uh, in perpetuity. We can pay you 50 uh, the, since the market price for uranium, the international trading price for uranium right now is 40 something dollars a kilogram. We'll promise to pay you 60 in perpetuity. 60 in perpetuity, locked in, if that's okay. And perhaps had they approached this situation like adults, Niger could have said, make it 70 or 80 and we have a deal. And then the French could have taken that. It would have been uh, still an order of magnitude, multiple orders of magnitude, more than they, what they were getting the uranium from before. But it wouldn't be these extortionary prices that they're being demanded to pay now. And it would still be lower than 200 a kilogram from Canada. And it wouldn't be necessarily that much higher than the, the market price. And you, you deal with the grievance and you maintain a steady supply of uranium. It's 
it was always that simple. But the French put themselves in this incredibly shitty position where they don't have enough leverage to get out of without being humiliated. But yeah, the, and there's a, a general sentiment among Niger's intelligentsia along with this that France should be demanded to compensate for Niger. Uh, they should be demanded to compensate Niger for the balance uh, in the same pattern of Germany being pressured to compensate Poland for the Nazi occupation. And I'm reading from the article here and paraphrasing. And I think it's worth mentioning before we continue, uh, again, France gets 20% of its uranium from Niger. There's, this is going to be a multi-year long affair diversifying away from them. The Niger government is going to get a billion dollars out of the French. They're going to get that billion dollars out of the French. They, they might not get the three and a half billion, but they're 350 something million a year. Even if that starts to fall off as the French diversify away, they're going to get a billion by the time the French can lower the profile of their uranium imports from Niger and diversify towards other uranium suppliers. Niger is going to get that billion dollars over the course of the next few years. Uh, but in looking at this, I decided, you know, well, I wondered how much uranium does Niger actually supply? Because this is a huge deal for France. This is a, a, a huge deal for France because, again, France gets 20% of its uranium from Niger and 70% of France's electricity comes from nuclear power. So, yeah, you're in a lot of trouble if suddenly 20% of your uranium supply doesn't materialize. So, this is a huge deal for France and is ultimately re the result of a huge foreign policy blunder. Now, that said... I said at the start of this that Niger's price uh, that they want to implement, which is $200 a kilogram, is above the current international market price, which right now is hovering around $46 a pound, now, which itself is down from the $51 a pound it was last year. Now, you might have noticed I said pounds, and I did say pounds. And when you convert the pounds to kilograms, those prices are essentially cut in half because uh, a kilogram is about two pounds. A pound is a little under half of a kilogram. So it takes a little bit more than two pounds to match a kilogram. So they're talking essentially about charging $200 per kilogram when the market price is about $22 a kilogram right now. And, and it's this is down from what it was last year, which was about $51 a pound. So that would be about what 25 26 kilo uh, dollars a kilogram is what the market price was last year. So, yeah, this is really this is really expensive. Now, perhaps there are technicalities in the trade of uranium that I'm not necessarily able to account for because I'm not educated enough. But just looking at the raw numbers here, it this is very this is blatantly uh, a get back. This is grievance politics aimed specifically at France. You took our uranium for eight cents, uh, 80 cents, uh, I almost said a gallon. You took our uranium for 80 cents a kilogram. Well, now you're going to pay $200 a kilogram at 10 times the market price. 
and cons now consider that merciful. Consider it merciful because you got it for 80 cents. 80 cents times 10 is $8. $8 times what, three? Gets you 24? So 30 times less than market price is what the French got their uranium out of Niger for. So if the if Niger was going fully tit for tat, they would charge 30 times the market price, uh, which would effectively amount to uh, over $600 a kilogram. They're charging 200. So, you know, it's only 10 times the market price. But this is grievance politics. And in the this war of grievance politics, in this great game being played by France and Niger, Niger, because of the resources that they have, that the French import from them, and because of the price that the French have been getting from them, and due to the plus due to the time of year, Niger currently holds every single one of the cards. Every single one of the cards. The French have been weakened by the war in Ukraine. They don't have the wherewithal to do a proper invasion or attempted overthrow of the coup uh, of the military in Niger. They don't, they don't have the ability to do it, and they're trying to get ECOWAS to do it for them. And they still can't. ECOWAS has yet to go in. Now, we'll see what happens. It, that still remains to be seen, but it's... Uh, I would say it's about to be winter, but they're damn near next to the equator, so winter doesn't really mean much to them. But yeah, France is weak. France is going into recession. France gets 20% of its uranium from Niger and 70% of its electricity from nuclear at a time when they're also having gas issues because of the sanctions on Russia. Niger has both the... Uh, they have a confluence of the right time, they're in the right place, and they have the right assets, and they're using them in the right way. And the French have not a, and they've caught the French, and this is the, the, the they've caught the French at such a good time that the French have no way to respond to what they're doing right now. Not even with military force, the French just have not no answer what Niger is doing right now so they have to either sit there and take it and roll over and die or they can cough it up <laughs> they can either sit there and refuse to pay and have rolling blackouts in the middle of winter and have people freeze to death or they can cough it up so not saying that out loud makes me think of again the pre-Columbus expedition the pre-columbian world <coughs> where europe was at the bottom of the fucking totem pole not necessarily impoverished but my golly everyone had won over on the europeans prior to the discovery of the new world even africa and more and more it looks like we are returning to that state of affairs and the europeans are going to be crushed under the weight of these grievances, uh, starting with the grievances, and then eventually it'll just be pure economics, more people, more money, more wealth, more resources in all these other places, and then all these other places are already integrating and 
doing trade with one another, just getting even more rich, and the Middle East will be the dominant players at play in this because they are going to be the crossroads of Eurasia and Africa. You're going to have all these wealthy powers, and then the Europeans are going to be stuck with the bills from importing luxuries and basic amenities and resources from all these countries who are richer than them in natural resources. Now, the Europeans don't necessarily have to succumb to that. They could do trade and become wealthier. But let's be honest, Europe is a very small place relative to the rest of the world. And all the resources uh, are found in Russia. (laughs) Found in Russia. But yeah, this is what that makes me think of. The pre-Columbus era of geopolitics and Niger. Who would have thought Niger would play a part in the return of that order of things? But all that, and I got to thinking, okay, how much uranium does Niger actually supply? Because this is, this is big talk for a country that uh, I presume must must supply some massive supply, some massive quantity, some massive proportion of the world's uranium supply. And then you find out that Niger only accounts for like 5% of global uranium production, which is, which sure is on par with Russia at 5% and China at 4%. But places like Canada and Australia account for 10 and 9% respectively. Namibia down in South of Africa, not South Africa, but down in the South of Africa, Namibia is at 12% of global uranium production and Kazakhstan. Oh my God. They produce nearly half the world's supply at 46%. And then you have some honorable mentions, uh, with Uzbekistan and uh, it was Uzbekistan and uh, dang, it was it was a lot of former so uh, uh, yeah Uzbekistan and Ukraine Uzbekistan and Ukraine there were there was some other major uranium producers. France gets twenty percent of its uranium from Niger, nineteen percent of their uranium from Uzbekistan, and another twenty seven percent from Kazakhstan. So with this price, uh, the reverse of a price cap. Oh my God, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> It's the price cap idea being imposed on uh, the people doing the price cap this time. The sanctioners are about to get sanctioned through resources and setting prices for resources that they need. They tried to put a price cap on Russian oil. Now, uh, Niger is putting price mandates on their resources that the French have to buy. And if other countries go along with the price mandates, like other uranium producers, if they say, you know what, that's a good idea. You have to pay this much for our uranium now. If they they jump on board the bandwagon just to start dunking on France, if Kazakhstan joins in on this, it's over. Kazakhstan produces half the world's uranium. You're never going to escape. No one else can make up for that supply. The Russians would go along with it. Of course they would. They're not gonna. They're not gonna leave Kazakhstan out in the wind. They're gonna, jo- and then it's a wrap. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I didn't even think about that. 
this could get so much worse in a matter of uh, small yet meaningful decisions. The sanctioners are about to get sanctioned. The, the people who try to impose a price cap are not going to get price mandates thrown back at them that they have no answer to. Oh my goodness. Now that's a bitch. <laughs> that's a bitch. This situation is kryptonite to France, which is uh, ironic g- given that we're talking about a, an element on the periodic table and that kryptonite is an element of the periodic table. And uranium, which was long thought to be their strength. Krypton, we, we thought that Krypton was our strength. It was our enemy. It was our greatest weakness. But now here's France with this uranium, with, which powers their civilization. And their major supplier of uranium is about to threaten to upend their entire world. Because all it takes is for someone else to join on to this price mandate idea, even if it's in a more limited way. And it's lights out for France and the rest of the EU. Everyone who imports uranium from these people, and they're they're not going to do it to China. They're not going to do this to Russia. And not that it would matter to Russia because the Russians produce their own uranium. But Europe? Oh my goodness. The And they would have France to blame because France started the shit with Niger. Oh, wow. This could get interesting so fast. And by interesting, I mean uh, it could get tragic so fast. Because <laughs> they're staring down the barrel of an energy crisis right before winter. Because that, the timing of this, it, I don't know why France picked this fight. I, I, like, I, I don't want to sit here and just glaze the meat of Niger all day. But I really don't know why France picked this fight at the time and the place that they did. They're going to lose. And when they lose, they'll either have to cough up the money and take the, the L, which they're allergic to. Or they're going to sit and freeze to death in the middle of the winter it's a losing battle that they're in right now with one of their largest suppliers of uranium how did they possibly think this was going to go over well oh my goodness this is so bad for them it's so bad for them and i i don't see a way out of this because the ways out that I can see, which is that you talk to the new government instead of pretending, instead of saying, oh, you're illegitimate, we're not going to work with you. We want the old president put back into power because democracy, and you know, instead of doing that, you sit down and talk with the people who own, who have control over the country and guarantee, oh, all you had to do was sit down and talk with the new people in charge and and just a brief conversation to make sure that your interests were going to be secure in Niger. And they, they would have gone along with it. They would have had to renegotiate a few things, a few details, but you could have handled that like adults. But because you try 
to you threaten to overthrow their government instead of having an adult conversation about your interests in someone else's country and respecting that it was ultimately someone else's country. Now you have these problems that you have no ability to solve on your own. Like I, coal and nuclear is all Europe has in terms of energy supply. If they're not going to get natural gas from Russia, coal and nuclear is all they have. You can't go pissing off your uranium suppliers. You don't have shit else. Like, really think about this. No one was thinking about this. And that lack of thought has so many consequences that it it hurts. And it hurts them a lot more than it hurts me. My goodness. My goodness. But now we'll move on to the final topic of today's episode, which is Ukraine aid. Ukraine aid. Because I come across some uh, interesting numbers. Interesting numbers. And we'll get into it. So last week, well, really a few days ago, when I was about to go shitposting on Twitter about how uh, our, how useless our allies are, and I am uh, making a increasingly more dedicated effort to be more active on Twitter, or I suppose I should call it X. I'm trying to be more active on X, because X is where the conversation is. Uh, before, While I was about to do that uh, and talk about how worthless and useless our allies allies are, uh, I went about trying to find some useful infographics that would convey my point in a single image rather than just relying on my words. I was going to, of course, I was going to say something, but I was gonna, it, it's best to have an image that conveys what you're saying on top of what you say. Uh, so I came across this article from the Council of Foreign Relations because I was looking for Ukraine aid by country. And I did find one uh, from Statista, and we'll get into the numbers from Statista towards the end of this. But I thought that this article was very informative, even if not entirely accurate. Uh, and the accuracy will be revealed immediately once we get into it. But yeah, excuse me. Yeah, uh, and before we get into this article from the Council of Foreign Relations, uh, like others, they fundamentally do not understand geopolitics, which is very ironic. But that's just the era we live in. But we're not here to endorse their ideas. We're here because the article was an absolute treasure trove of info about the amount of aid we've given to Ukraine, even with the numbers as not accurate as they were. The the, the number of total aid that we've given being inaccurate. So let's get into it. Uh, And right off the bat, it starts by vastly understating the total aid we've given to Ukraine. Because they put the number, and so keep this in mind when we're going over all the numbers uh, that we get from this article. They asked, they put the total number of U.S. aid to Ukraine at seventy-five billion. Oh, 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 how we wish! That is literally less than a third of how much we've actually ended up giving them. Uh, but we'll get into the article now because the article breaks it down by equipment type, which is, again is just very, very useful for me grabbing info for you uh, to put this segment together. So we have infantry equipment and I'll just move my mic around a little bit. Yeah. Infantry equipment. We have given them 10,000 Javelin anti-armor systems. And oh, don't you remember in how in the beginning of the war, everyone was talking about the Javelins and the Stingers 
Now we're we're going to give them this, and the, the Russians won't know what to do when they face this modern, high tech, advanced Western equipment. Oh, <laughs> notice how the whole superior quality Western equipment argument has just fallen off the face of the cliff. That no one even bothers bringing it up. Why? Because the Russians aren't an inferior fighting force. I don't know why people went into this on the assumption that the Western-made equipment was just automatically better when people routinely compared the T-90 to the Abrams. Routinely. And it's like, okay, well, you have two comparable tanks, except one of them is lighter, and one of them is easier to produce, and has a lower price tag. And all of those fell into the, the category of the T-90 which the Russians are still making and they outproduce all of Europe in tank production and they outproduce us as well. They outproduce all of us in tanks and tank production, modern tank production. They're talking T90s specifically. And then they have the tens of thousands of out, more outdated uh, vehicles that they use for their rear and reserve units. But the frontline units have the modern equipment. <clears throat> And we've sent all this aid, and now the the whole superior, higher quality Western equipment thing is just falling off the face of the earth. Just, just, just a side note, just a side note, because looking at the, the, the whole javelin thing just made me think about that and how I was inundated with the javelin this and the javelin that and the stinger this and the stinger that, and here we are. The, the war is still going on, and no one talks about these weapons anymore. It's all about how we need to give Ukraine fighter jets and more tanks. Hmm very interesting how that goes but nevertheless the article states that for infantry equipment because it breaks it down by type infantry equipment we've given them 10,000 javelin anti-armor systems 70,000 other anti-armor systems and munitions we've given them 1,700 stinger anti-aircraft systems 4,000 TOW missiles 35,000 grenade launchers and small arms so guns uh, ba basic guns pistols you know, rifles you name it with ammunition it doesn't specify the amount of ammunition but we can assume millions and millions of rounds tens of millions of rounds if uh, if we blown through four million artillery shells that we've given them, then undoubtedly we've blown through at least five to ten times as many small small arms ammunition so uh, 40,000 rounds of small arms uh, is a reasonable estimate, probably. Uh, uh, well, we'll say 20,000, because that's five times. We, we gave them 100,000 sets of body armor and helmets, uh, and then thousands of night vision devices. So lots of standard infantry stuff. We've given them enough stuff to arm whole divisions with everything they need from anti-air to anti-tank capabilities. We, we get that over the course of the, the what, the year and a half? Because this article actually came out about a month ago. Uh, so it's that's also why I decided to bring it up, because it's very recent and it was very convenient for me. So all this in a year and a half. And mind you, it's going off the really, really lowballed estimate 
that we've only given them $75 billion in aid. So all that we gave them, and that's just infantry equipment. For artillery, it says we've given them 160. And this is going to get a little confusing because I'm going to say the number of the artillery, and then it's going to go into the millimeters, so like the width of the barrel. So sort of bear with me here. We've given them 160 units, and I think that's how I'll say it. We're giving them 160 units of 155 millimeter howitzers and ammunition. And if you'll remember, we ran out of 155 millimeter shells. I don't even know how many that is, but apparently it's all of them. <laughs> apparently it's all of them. Oh my goodness. So that's a problem. We've given 160 uh, units of 155 millimeter howitzers that we no longer have the ammunition to supply them with. That's great, because uh, that's the highest number on here. Uh, we've given them 72 units of 105 millimeter howitzers along with the ammunition. Uh, and it doesn't specify the ammunition for any of these, so we just have to go off the prior knowledge for some of the things we have. We've given them 47 units of 120 of 120 millimeter mortar systems. So now it goes from artillery to mortar. Uh, we've given them 10 units of 82 millimeter mortar systems, 67 units of 81 millimeter mortar systems, 58 units of 60 more millimeter mortar systems. Uh, and then we've given them 203 millimeter, 152 millimeter, 130 millimeter, 122 millimeter, and 120 millimeter, oh, and 25 millimeter ammunition for uh, artillery and mortar systems that the Ukrainians already had. We've given them the ammunition for those, even though we haven't necessarily supplied artillery with those specimens for them. And then we've given them 38 high Mars systems, 60,122 millimeter grad rockets systems, Oh, no, great rockets. And, oh, this is talking about the, the rockets. Okay, so we've given them 38 high Mars systems. And then on top of that, we've given them 60,000 rockets. 122 millimeter grad rockets, precision guided rockets. Then we've given them rocket launchers and ammunition. All within, I presume, the 122 millimeter uh, specification. Uh obviously excluding the HIMARS system because those are bigger rockets. That's a lot. That's a lot of artillery, but not enough. Obviously not enough to keep up with 40,000 shells a day coming out of the Russians. And even then, we ran out of 155 millimeter shells. We ran out of 155 millimeter shells, which is why we're giving them clusters now. Then it goes to tanks. Tanks and armored personnel carriers where... We've given them 150, and this is, look, this is where it gets spicy, right? This is where it gets spicy. So, uh, we've given them 154 Bradley infantry fighting vehicles, four Bradley fire support uh, support team vehicles, 31 Abrams tanks, and there, there was a big deal about, oh, we're going to give them modern Western tanks, and the, the Russians won't know how... We need to give them these, the, the Challenger 2s and the, the Leopard 2s and the Abrams. And remember all that talk about tanks and how we were going to, it was going to save the day. 
around this time last year when the talk began. And then uh, early last year, we started seeing tank shipments actually go out. And now look, they don't have anything. They've lost hundreds of tanks in that counteroffensive. So keep in mind that when we go over these numbers, 154 Bradley infantry fighting vehicles, four Bradley fire support team vehicles, 31 Abrams tanks, 45 T-72B tanks. So 45 units of the T-72 via the Czech Republic and because uh, the former Soviet bloc states, the Warsaw Pact, they would have former Soviet equipment to give the Ukrainians. So those T-72s came from the Czech Republic, all 45 of them. We gave them 125 striker armored personnel carriers. We gave them 300 units of the M113 armored personnel carrier. We gave them 250 units of the M1117 uh, armored security vehicles. Uh, and then that's sort of the end for the tanks and armored uh, personnel carriers, because for whatever reason, then it breaks it up into ground support vehicles. So I'm just going to count the ground support with the tanks and armored vehicles because they're, they're the same as far as I'm concerned. We've given them 2,000 Humvees, 354 tactical vehicles, 100 light tactical vehicles, 68 trucks, 124 trailers, 10 command posts, uh, 10 command post vehicles, excuse me. 30 ammunition support vehicles, six armored utility trucks, eight logistics support truck vehicles, 89 heavy fuel tankers, 105 fuel tankers, and that's the that's the end of the armored vehicles and tanks. 2,000 Humvees is crazy. And hundreds and hundreds of armored personnel carriers. And we know that hundreds and hundreds of armored vehicles have been destroyed. And considering that the bulk of this comes from us, and we'll we'll cover that as well, considering that the bulk of the military aid has come from the United States, the bulk of those losses of armored vehicles and tanks that we, well, not necessarily tanks, but the bulk of the armored vehicles lost during the counteroffensive that we were talking about when the offensive first began back in June, most of those came from us and we'll get into the discrepancy in just a little bit all of that and we're still not done because now we get into the air defense the air defense we given them one patriot air defense battery and oh, i swear going going through this list is like a, a trip down memory lane because there was so much hype around so many of these uh these items i remember all the hype around we giving them a, the patriot air defense battery We've only given them one. We've only given them one. I remember the Germans gave two of their latest, uh, their newest air defense platforms. They gave it to Ukraine before they even put it in their own military. Two of them. We've given them one Patriot air defense battery, all, all along with the ammunition for it. We've given them eight uh, NA SAM missiles. Then we've given them 20 Avenger air defense systems. We've given them the Hawk air defense systems. And munitions. We've given them RIM-7 missiles. We've given them anti-aircraft guns. We've given them uh, nine anti-drone gun trucks. We've given them 10 anti-drone laser-guided rocket systems. 
We've given them air-to-ground missiles, uh, which would include high-speed anti-radiation missiles. The HARMS is what the acronym is. We've given them precision aerial munitions, 6,000 Zuni aircraft rockets, which technically can function as air defenses as well, but it's really aimed for air-to-ground missiles. Uh, we give them 7,000 Hydra 70 aircraft rockets. All this equipment. All this equipment. And mind you, this is the underestimate. This is the underestimate because we've actually given Ukraine over $200 billion. And this article runs with the assumption that we've only given them $70 billion. So all that is only accounting for $75 billion. That's us. That's us. And those numbers will be corroborated by the, the Statista article because the Statista also only says that we've given 70, $70 billion, not even the 75 So uh, the numbers go together, conveniently for me, even though they're both wrong. But for the sake of argument, it works for me. All that aid for us. And that only represents less than a third of the total we've given, which by now is hovering around 230 billion. They keep finding these accounting errors. Oh, we, we just found three more billion dollars we can give to Ukraine. Oh, we just found six billion dollars we can give to Ukraine. Oh, we can never find six billion dollars for Maui, which uh, Joe Rogan had run the math on the, the amount of money it would take to rebuild all the homes in uh, Lahaina. And it's five billion. Five billion dollars to rebuild all of Lahaina. And where do they send the five billion? To Ukraine. So the people living in Hawaii have more than a right to be pissed that instead of rebuilding everyone's house, you're gonna give five billion dollars to the Ukrainians and then you're gonna steal the land on top of that. And all this aid we've given them, and that's only counting for a third of the money we've given them. Keep that in mind, because when we, we get to these other numbers, oh my goodness, $230 billion is what the real total is, uh, just about. It keeps going up. Uh, it's hard to keep up with, uh, especially since they don't report all of it. Uh, like, they're still pretending that we're only at $70 billion right now. Even though if you just go off the money that, that was given in those two big packages from Congress, it was $80 because we give them... 45 billion at first and then we give them another 40 billion so even at the bare minimum we're looking at 85 billion so how they end up with 70 billion here and 75 billion on the uh this article from council for relations how they end up with 10 billion less than the two big packages we get i don't know i really couldn't tell you uh the cope i suppose and deliberate deceit but that's the real the real number is somewhere around 230 billion but even only accounting for 75 billion compare that to the rest of the west and ooh, the west ooh. and it's it's not shocking it's not shocking when you do the comparison but it hits different to see the hard numbers broken down by country and for this comparison, we have the Statista article that I brought up, which is going over the bilateral aid given to Ukraine. So 
on this list by, by Statista, it estimates that the amount of aid we give to Ukraine is actually 70 billion instead of the 75, which the article from the Council of Foreign Relations puts it at. So it's it's lowballing even further a number which is already less than a third of the actual total. So keep that in mind because it breaks it down by country and by type. So the United States has given 24 billion in financial aid to Ukraine, 3 billion in humanitarian aid to Ukraine, and 42 billion in military aid. That's how it breaks down the 70 billion that we've given to Ukraine. That it says we've given to Ukraine, the 70 billion that it says we've given to Ukraine. The EU, the next runner up, at a grand total of 35 billion. Grand total. Half of the, the lowest lowball, which is 70 billion that we have. The EU is at half of what we've given in total. And the way that breaks down, out of that 35 billion, 27 billion is financial aid. 2 billion is humanitarian, and 5 billion is military aid. Five billion in military. The UK, the next up on the list, has given three, almost four billion in financial aid, 270 billion in humanitarian, and then 6.5 billion in military aid. So the UK has technically given more in military aid than the EU. Wait, hold on, 6.58 billion for the EU? Oh, it's about even. So the EU and the United Kingdom combined have both given six and a half billion in military aid. And then the next runner up after that is Germany, who's given 7.5 billion in military aid. So altogether, that's about what? 13 billion, seven, and then you have 20 billion. 20 billion in military aid between the EU, the United Kingdom, and then Germany by itself. 20 billion in military aid compared to 42 billion in military aid, according to this statistic article, which only puts the US total at 70 billion. So not only have we damn near outpaced all of them in financial aid, with the EU beating us by 3 billion and only 3 billion. But we have completely outpaced everyone in military aid. We've given 42 billion and the next three combined are 20 billion. Everybody else after that, irrelevant. Japan has given uh, 30 billion not even billion, that's not billion, 30 million, excuse me, in military aid. Canada has given one and a half billion in military aid. Poland has given three billion in military aid. The Netherlands, two billion. Norway, one billion. Denmark, one and a half billion. I think you get the message. I think you get the point. We get 42 billion and the rest of the West gives 20 something billion at their best. There's no comparison here.
there is no comparison here. They can't compete with the lowball. All of their aid combined doesn't even match the lowball of what we've been given. And mind you, this, this Statista article puts the total number of U.S. aid at $70 billion. When the real total is around 203, I mean 230 billion. So less than a third, all of our allies can't compete with less than a third of what we've given. Because it has all of NATO on the list. And there's the rest of these guys, because it's measured in billions, the, the bars are measured in billions. The rest of these guys, once you get past like Sweden, well, well, in Australia, they don't even register on the list. You can't even see the little notch. It doesn't even appear as a notch because they haven't even met the one billion mark. There's nothing. There's nothing here. Maybe all of NATO combined could potentially maybe match the, the, the 70 billion that this article is saying that we've given, which we have, except we that's less than a third of the total. We've given 230 billion. So if you factor that in, if you say that all of NATO combined has matched us, that would put the total aid, their total military aid at somewhere between 40 to 50 million, 40 to 50 billion. 40 to 50 billion compared to us giving 230 billion. And if a third of that is financial aid, like it is on this graph, then that means our financial aid would be equal to all of their aid combined. And then we double on top of that, all of their aid combined in terms of just military aid. I am not endorsing what we're giving to Ukraine, but my goodness, where's the help? Like, let's pretend that giving all this aid and all this money to Ukraine really was an imperative for the United States to do. And it really was in our interest to be doing this. And in the interest of NATO as a whole to be doing this, where is the help? Where are our allies? Where's where's the help? Where's the assistance? Where Where's the shoulder we can lean on when we need? Where is everyone? These people are nowhere to be found. The EU is worthless. The UK is worthless. And they're at the top of the fucking list. And they can't compete with a, a, a less than a third of what we've given. Less than a third is what they're competing with. And they're not even competitive. These are our, Belarus is a better ally to the Russians than all of NATO is to us. They helped put down Wagner's rebellion. Lukashenko did that. What are these guys doing for us? It's they're worthless. They're worth the numbers speak for themselves. Like, oh my goodness. Again, it, it hits different because you're not surprised. I, I know we're not surprised that NATO is just a, a worthless institution, but the numbers hit differently than to just just knowing like oh yeah, yeah nato it's only the united states we already know that it's just us 
it hits different to see the numbers and to see exactly how useless these alliances are. It, it hits differently. It really does. It, our esteemed allies are worthless. And I, I just increasingly, I can't find it in myself to understand why people would want us to be stuck with these people especially for the the indefinite period of time which is implied by the the general sentiment that america must stand by its allies why <laughs> why it's a known fact that nato doesn't honor its defense spending agreements which mind you are only two percent of gdp two percent of gdp and it's literally it's literally us greece occasionally the uk and very 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 recently did poland croatia lithuania latvia and estonia make the list that's it and even then they only just barely crossed the line they're only just barely above two percent poland's at three now but where's germany what, what what happened to all that talk of Germany's putting a hundred billion dollars into their military budget? Their the German superpower is about to reawaken. Don't you you remember that? Remember when Germany put aside a hundred billion dollars for the rearming of Germany? Where where'd that go? They're still not at two percent. Now, if you check the list now, they're still not at two percent. These people are worthless. These people are useless. I don't mean that as a, oh, they don't deserve to live, they're worthless as people. No, I mean that in terms of allies, they are useless. We have no use for allies like this. I, and people want us to stick in this, this thing. People want us to stand by our allies. Why? Like, you have more sentiment against NATO than you do against say the other allies like israel south korea taiwan but it's not like they're more useful as allies than nato is i just i don't get it it's literally just us and as, as far as i'm concerned if it's gonna be just us then we may as well act like it instead of pretending that we have all these allies who are just really pitching in and doing their part for the greater good they're not doing a damn thing and they live in Europe. They live in Europe and they can't compete with less than a third of what we've given. That's insane to me. That is absolutely wild, is what it is. Like, the numbers really do hit differently. To see it on a screen and then to compare the sizes for nerfed US figures and then to see you nerf the US figures by more than three times instead of putting it at the 230 odd billion that it's actually at you say it's it's only 70 billion and then the rest of your allies still can't compete it's insane it's insane especially with the again the context that if if the numbers were represented properly the rest, the EU wouldn't even register. The EU, which is half of a third of what we've given. <coughs> oh, brother. These, 
I don't get it. Why do you want to be in an alliance with these people? Why do you want to be in an alliance with these people? What do we get out of this? Because they have more interest in Europe and Ukraine than we do. Okay. Like, let, even if we pretend that we had interest in Ukraine, which is what we're going to assume here, because we don't. But if we assume that we do, you know, they would, no matter how you would like to slice it, they would have more of a vested interest in what happened in Ukraine and what goes on in Ukraine than we do. That's just the way it is. Because they live in Europe. They will live with Russia and they will live with the enlarged Russian state after the war. What happens in Ukraine matters to them. And even if it did matter to us, which it doesn't, it will always matter to them more because they live in Europe. And this is this is the best they have to offer? Not even able to compete with a third of what we've given? They're not sending their best. They are not sending their best. But these are our allies. These are people we're supposed to be stuck to. We're supposed to be stuck with the West because China, Russia. I'm not trying to be stuck with these people. They're going to drag me down. They're already dragging me down. I don't need this and I don't want this. NATO does not need to exist. And if it's going to exist, then it should exist without the United States. I cannot wait for Trump in his glorious second term to get us out of this alliance because my goodness, these people are unworthy of having us as an ally. And that's just real. That's just real. Like the numbers speak for themselves. The numbers are in. The results are in. It's time to go. It is time to go. But with that, my lovely listeners, <coughs> damn, I'm still sick. But with that, my lovely listeners, that's all I got for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's uh, serious broadcast on my my lovely geopolitical podcast. We have traitors in our government. We know that. But I feel like, I don't know, because it's the assumption that they'll always get away with it. But I don't think they're going to get away with it. It's it's just this sort of gut feeling I have. Now, I could be just so blatantly wrong. I Because, uh, look, I've been wrong before. But I don't know. It's just this feeling in my gut that won't go away. That I don't think they're going to get away with it this time. I think that they think they'll get away with it. And I think that it is precisely because they think that they think they'll get away with it. That they won't get away with it. They'll get sloppy just like they did with 2016 and let Trump in the door. And now with Trump promising to come back and tear them a new air hole, well, eventually that's going to lead to uncovering the JFK assassination, 9-11, all the crimes these people have committed. If he's really going to go all in on cleaning house and purging the deep state, that's inevitably going to result in exposing 9-11. And what happened to 9-11? I think 
we are in for some good times in the future. And it'll be nice to have the closure and even nicer to have the full story. But we'll have to wait for that. Good things often take time. But like I said, uh, that's all I've got for you today on my geopolitical podcast. I do hope you've enjoyed. Uh, am I messing up my my ex- <laughs> my exits? I've lost where I am. Uh, look, the world is changing, folks. All right, the world is changing. It's changing fast, and my golly, it's changed so much since nine eleven, uh, especially with the security state here. But no matter how the world changes, and no matter what happens with those changes, we will have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Sean Wade. And you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. And so till we meet again next time, on next Monday, Servus.